This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome to the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Leith from AJ Bell. Dan's unfortunately away on holiday this week, doing a number of DIY items, I'm told. So uh, I'm going to be joined this week by Tom, also from AJ Bell. Hello. Uh, this week we're going to be talking uh, about a number of quite interesting things. Uh, one of them is a return to uh, the fund management industry by Neil Woodford. Uh, we're also going to be looking at some some data that's come out from the financial regulator, showing how COVID has impacted on people's finances, what people are doing with their savings and investments. We'll also have another instalment of Retirement Corner, where this week's question is about the increase in the point at which people can access their retirement pot. And this week's special guest interview is a China special with Matthews Asia investment strategist, Andy Rothman. But before we get into all of that, with Dan away, Leith, can you tell us what's been happening on the markets this week? Yeah, I can. Quite a lot has been happening on the markets mm. this week, actually. Um, we've got some, um, you know, pretty pretty good numbers um, coming across from Japan. I think, broadly speaking, we, we can say animal spirits are in control of markets at the moment with mm. the Nikkei 225, which is the, the Japanese, uh, the main Japanese stock market index, rising through 30,000 uh, for the first time since 1990. Wow. Um, yeah. So that, you know, big rises on Monday. We also saw big rises in the, the FTSE 100 as well. The FTSE 100 uh, up around 2.5% on Monday as well. Um, and that was despite uh, the pound doing quite well. Pound's now at 139 against the dollar. Um, so it's riding quite high. Uh, and normally a rising pound would mean the FTSE's on the back foot because mm. quite a lot of the companies within it have large international earnings. So when you're converting them back into sterling, uh, share prices, a, a, a rising pound mm. is bad for them. So the, the FTSE 100 doing pretty well as well. Um, number of reasons, I guess, behind uh, strong market performance. Um, in Japan in particular, there were some good numbers from the economy uh, rising by 3% in the fourth quarter of, of last year. So that helped to boost sentiment. Um, we've also got in the US, uh, the fiscal stimulus plan still working its way through, uh, mm. through, through Congress. So um, you know, there's kind of still a lot being pegged on that. And, and I think more broadly, we have got, um, you know, kind of optimism over vaccine rollouts, particularly here in the UK. Mm. And that, you know, that sentiment does seem to ebb and flow a bit, and it's never very clear exactly what's driving it. Um, but I guess, you know, particularly here in the UK, we've now reached that kind of that 15 million target that, that the government had for mid-February, and we're starting to think about the post-lockdown world, aren't we? Uh, and markets are probably starting to think about that uh, as well. And probably, you know, and that's probably behind some of the, the positive sentiments. Yeah. What's what's going what's going to happen um, in 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 your life post-lockdown, Leith? Are there any specific uh, specific plans that you've got, or are they all shelved? I haven't booked anything yet? No, I have literally haven't booked anything else. I don't know about you, but I mean, I guess I'm probably taking a lead from the government, which seems to be downplaying how quickly we're going to get out of lockdown. <laughs> so I'm, I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not actually planning anything at the moment. I, I think that's probably wise, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, a similar barrel. You, you were, you were supposed to be going to Glastonbury, weren't you? Obviously, that's that was knocked on the that's, head a while that's, ago. That's definitely knocked on the head. Yeah. So um, we'll we'll see. I think I'm I'm just playing a, a playing a waiting game. 
Yeah. Um, but 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 like I say, I think you know that kind of conversation is now is now probably starting to to kind of hit investors mm. because we're looking we're looking beyond the the lockdown and the success of, of vaccines. And I think that's you know particularly if you look at some of the companies that are doing well on the UK stock market, it's been the cyclical stocks. It's been the likes of um, Lloyd's. Lloyd's was up five percent on Monday. Um, and and BP and Shell as well doing quite well because oil prices mm. are, are are on the rise as well, um, and we've also had some pretty significant news I would say from the from the mining industry. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, I, I've probably given you a bit of a clue here, Tom, but um, I'm, I'm going to ask you. I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you what you think is the biggest stock in the FTSE 100. Okay. And you said you said mining. I have, unfortunately, which was okay. a mistake. I shouldn't have so, that. But, HSBC. Yeah. No, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll go for Glencore. Okay. And, you know, not a bad bad shout. Uh, the, the the HSBC actually was the biggest stock uh, in the FTSE for a little while. Yeah. Um, uh, more recently, it was Unilever. Mm. Um, Shell's always knocking about at the top, but actually now the biggest stock is BHP, okay, uh, which is uh, Australian mining giant. Mm. It's dual listed on the on on the UK and Australian stock exchanges, um, and you know it's it's been doing very well over the last uh, year or so uh, as a result of rising commodity prices, uh, and it's also announced uh, uh, it's now announced a record uh, first half dividend. Um, uh, and it's been joined as well today by mm. um, recording this on Wednesday. So today that's been joined by Rio Rio Tinto, um, also posting a, a record dividend. Uh, and that kind of you know that kind of paints a picture of, of a mining industry which is doing quite well actually, surprisingly yeah. in in what what is kind of a a fairly you know you'd expect poor time for for kind of you know. The global economy and hence you know stocks like mining shouldn't necessarily be doing that well but if you look at you know expectations for dividends this year mining companies in the FTSE 100 actually uh, are looking like they're going to to contribute a record amount um, around 18 percent of of the FTSE's dividends this year are expected to come from mining companies mm -hmm. and a lot of that is coming from rising commodity prices um you know iron ore is is up um, you know, around 80% in the last year or so, the price of iron ore, that's the key ingredient in steel making. Mm. Now, some of that demand is coming from China, um, you know, which, which uses a lot in its, in its infrastructure spend. But I think also there's something perhaps a bit unusual feeding in here, something you might not expect, which is that perhaps the trend towards green energy and green sources, green sources of energy is, is actually driving demand for, um, for, 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 for mining raw materials. Mm. And the reason for that is if you think about it, actually moving across to green energy is going to require infrastructure. Yeah. Um, and seeing so, you know, stuff like wind turbines, you know, need to be manufactured and that. Uh, that I think is beginning to feed through as well. That as you know, kind of we've had kind of you know kind of a boom in, in renewable energy stocks, but also it's feeding through into the into the mining industry as well. So that's definitely definitely one to, to keep an eye on. And I think perhaps if you're going to take a negative away from this, is is that perhaps that also builds builds up inflation um, in the global economy as well, because you know commodity prices are one of mm. the basic inputs into the world economy, and if they are rising, that suggests that. 
you know, there might be upper pressure on other prices as well. So um, that's kind of probably a roundup of, of what's been going on in, mm. in kind of traditional markets, shall we say? Um, it, you know, uh, there's also stuff been going on in Bitcoin. Of course, it wouldn't be a week in 2021 without something going on in Bitcoin, would it? So you couldn't help uh, yourself, could you? You couldn't, couldn't help yourself. If it wasn't, if it wasn't reaching another new high and a particularly mm. significant one, which is, you know, fifty uh, fifty thousand dollars um, for for Bitcoin. Mm. So last week we had the news that Tesla had put one point five billion dollars into uh, into Bitcoin. Um, this week, some more news, uh, which seems to be um, uh, driving up the price. More institutions saying that they're getting involved in, in, in Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. Over last week, we've had MasterCard saying that they're going to facilitate payment in Bitcoin if merchants want it. Uh, and also the US banking giant uh, BNY Mellon saying that they're going to start providing some sort of custody and administration services for Bitcoin. And that's just fed you know, fed the, the frenzy a little bit more. Mm. So we're, we're now kind of about about $50,000 uh, for a Bitcoin. Um, you know, at what, at, what, can... at what point does this become? Uh, so people obviously always, always say with Bitcoin is it could go to zero or it could go the other way up to I mean, each Bitcoin could be $500,000 mm. or, or more. What, when, mm. will, will we know when we've hit a, a tipping point and it's become, become a legitimate form of currency or will it, will it be will it be hard to tell you obviously talk about some major institutions mm. there looking to facilitate yeah. it i mean inevitably we, we won't we won't be able to tell no mm. i mean that's just the nature of of, of of markets and i think it's particularly something as volatile and speculative as, as bitcoin um you i mean you raise a very interesting point there which is when will it be um you know acceptable as currency mm. when will it, you know when will it act as money um, and I think we're quite a long way away from that because at the moment it feels to me like it is, you know, perhaps a legitimate investment for some money managers. We've had, you know, you know pretty well-respected um, um, investors at Ruffer saying that they're putting some money into mm. Bitcoin as part of a, you know, a small bet in a much bigger portfolio, of course. Um, but actually using it as money, I mean, mm. think about it for a second. If, you know, if you would say, you know, your, your employer said to you, I'm going to pay you in Bitcoin. I'm going to pay you a Bitcoin a year, right? At the moment, you're you're what you're getting fifty thousand dollars or so mm. per per annum. Um, now next year, you know you might get double that, but equally you might get you know half of it. So it's it's you know its volatility is an issue with yeah. using it as a as a means of of, of exchange as as money as, yeah. as we know it, and that may change in future. You know, there might come a point when it becomes. Uh, more stable but i'd also probably i think i think this is quite interesting um um is 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 looking at kind of what tesla said about it because you know deep mm -hmm. in the kind of risk warnings that they issued last week along with the kind of hype around them putting money into bitcoin you know there was a bit in their their regulatory report which highlighted the risks as they they saw them and you know just quoting a little bit from that they say you know long-term adoption by investors consumers and businesses is unpredictable they say mm. it's 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 open to malicious attacks and technological obsolescence and it also they also flag securities laws and and and, and other regulations uh, which which may impact um, and 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 you know so you know they say if we hold digital assets their value could decrease relative to our purchase price and our financial condition can be harmed. So that's Tesla, who's obviously 
quite bullish about the case for for Bitcoin taking taking that that stance and saying you know there are risks involved here, which is natural and obviously kind of anyone who's putting money into Bitcoin should should take note of that. Mm. I'd also flag one other th risk, which I think is quite an interesting one, which has kind of emerged um, from some news over the last week, which was some research. Um, that's been done by um, uh, analysts at Cambridge University, which suggests that um, Bitcoin mining consumes more electricity than Argentina. Um, and wow. that's because in order to kind of mine the Bitcoin, you need computer servers mm. to do it. They need to solve puzzles um, and then they get rewarded with Bitcoins. Now, that's significant, I think, because we also at the same time as, you know, the Bitcoin frenzy is going on, we have this massive... Um, a shift towards investing in environmentally mm. friendly things. And you have to question if a currency is using that much energy to produce, how does that sit with ESG investing? I'm not sure it sits very well. Mm. And that's particularly, and then you can knock that on a little bit and say, well, how does that fit in with Tesla as well? Tesla is, you know, you know provides electric vehicles. It's, you know, a, a, a great a force for great good in terms of its environmental impact but now it's investing in this thing bitcoin which is consuming all this energy so i think there's another risk there that's perhaps emerging and, and one for people to think about too yeah i think that's a, that's a really interesting point around the environmental impact actually and and when when you when you when you mention um, the volatility i thought of whether or not i'd want my my salary to go up and down with elon musk's tweets and um, <laughs> yes. i don't think i would ultimately that would be far too high risk um Okay, so next up, the return of Neil Woodford, the man who enjoyed a stellar career while at Invesco Perpetual, becoming arguably the most well-known fund manager in the world, almost a celebrity in the fund management world, if that thing exists, and delivering huge returns for investors while making himself very rich at the same time, of course, before a spectacular fall from grace at his first solo venture, Woodford Investment Management. So... Laith, what's Neil Woodford said and what is his new venture going to look like? Do we even know what his new venture is going to look like? Well, we, we know a bit, not not mm. kind of everything by any means, but um, I guess this all kicked off with a, over the weekend with uh, an interview that he did with um, The Telegraph, mm. um, flagging the fact that, um, you know, he's setting up a new uh, investment firm, uh, Woodford Capital um, Management. Mm. Um, it's uh, going to be based in Jersey. Probably an important um, fact is that it is going to be advising professional investors. Mm -hmm. So um, there's no hint at the moment that um, it's going to be doing anything that I mean for, for, for retail investors. Yeah. It, it's going to focus on advising those professional investors, institutional investors, I read that as, um, on... Um, you know, biotechnology stocks, mm. you know, British biosciences, healthcare stocks, the smaller unquoted companies that, you know, were, were part of the, the liquidity problem with the, the, the Woodford Equity Income Fund. Um, and, um, you know, needless to say, um, the the return of, of you know, um, a fund manager who's become so mired in, in controversy mm has caused um, quite quite a ripple and quite a lot of attention. Um, part of that attention uh, has come from the FCA, 
um and um you know that may in itself have been prompted by you know media questioning of the fca the fca is continuing uh, to investigate the the circumstances surrounding um uh, the suspension of woodford equity uh, income um and it you know it issued uh, you know it felt compelled to issue a mm. um a statement on the back of you know, Near Woodford announcing uh, that he is returning uh, to um, the financial services sector in, in some form um, and saying that you know it, it basically it's still investigating you know if, if if you know if you know he applies for you know UK any kind of UK regulatory um, authority that there will be hoops to jump through that they're in conversation with Jersey that they're not at the moment saying what or who they're investigating mm. as part of the suspension. So, you know, there's there's a little bit of ambiguity, I guess, I guess there. But you know, quite a uh, an interesting move from the financial regulator to take in in relation to press activity. Uh, and of course, there have been uh, there's been you know a natural reaction from investors who've lost money in by investing in, in the Woodford funds. Um, you know, kind of saying, well, hang on a minute. Um, you know, is 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 this is this right? That he's doing this. Um, yeah, there, there are still there are still investors who are who are waiting to get all their money yeah. back from Woodford as well. That's right, isn't it? That is that is correct. Mm. Yeah. So you know, I, I, I think you know it's probably going to be a small amount of money, but at some point mm. this year they're expected to get the final payment. But quite a lot of them have lost money, so obviously angry. Um, I think you know. That, I mean, let's say let's let's you know look at you know, on the one hand you know should neil woodford you know be allowed to mm. you know continue with his living be given a second chance um you know that's one view um i guess on the other side obviously there's there's a question about whether it's too soon i don't know mm. you know it kind of feels a bit too soon maybe yeah um you know it's two years and because there's still this ongoing um you know regulation uh, sorry regulatory investigations mm -hmm. going on um that that's not entirely clear that, that it, it feels that maybe it maybe it is a bit too soon and perhaps that's that's evident in some of the, the reaction um uh, that you've got and there are also just some of the you know it's quite a lot of what's going on seems to be rhyming a little bit with what happened before and that you know it's kind of the, the the name of the company is Woodford Capital Management. Mm. You know, not you know it's, it's it's not something new. It's it's like Woodford Investment Management. You know, and he's also kind of you know, going back to the, so those same stocks, the kind of biotech stocks that caused the problem. So um, you know, none none of that is you know the smoking gun, but it's just you know those mm. kind of those, those rhymes, the, 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 that kind of resonance is is not is not great at least optically. So um, I'm sure that there'll be much more um on on this front you know for for some time to come yeah um, any, any, anyone who hasn't read the um the telegraph interview with uh with neil woodford i would uh, highly recommend reading it's a very good piece of journalism as much as um as much of as much as anything else and quite an emotive a surprisingly emotive um interview i thought but I, I think that's that's part of what's going on here isn't it there's the as you say there's the the practical question of should neil woodford be able to manage money anymore after what um after what happened with Woodford Investment Management and clearly that's um up to in part the the regulator and will be of course in part down to whether whether or not 
institutions um, are willing to trust him with money uh, money again. Clearly, that's going to be part of the battle that he'll face if he's managed to get the, if he manages to get this uh, new venture through the regulatory loopholes that he needs to get it through and up and running. Is that you then need to get people to believe in your ability to to manage money over over the long term. So that'll be part of the challenge, and and you and and part of this is, is also, as you say, the the some of the the, the issues is that lots of investors have had and you can imagine if you're an investor in Woodford who's lost 25% plus of the value of your original investment whatever the circumstances around that and I know there are accusations going around about um, Link the Administrator and all the rest of it if you've lost that money and then Neil Woodford is coming back bold as brass as you might see it to launch something else you can imagine that that would be quite galling to say to say the least so it's a, an, an interesting story and I think one with one with many parts as you say that's gonna that's gonna keep on running and running yeah absolutely so I think that is uh, something that's going to roll on and on and we'll no doubt hear more uh, as as the weeks unfold but let's turn to something a a bit broader um shall we um the financial serve uh, financial conduct authority uh, hasn't been the FCA for a while, uh, FSA for a while, has it? <laughs> um, uh, uh, issued a report on um, uh, the financial condition of UK savers and investors, mm. particularly, I guess, Tom, in, in relation to how things have changed as a result of um, of COVID. And it's quite a wide ranging report. Um, lots of um, you know useful facts and figures in there from from what it, what it looks like. Um, what, what 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 have you picked out? What are the key highlights um, from? From what it's called the financial live survey isn't it what's yeah uh, what, what are you seeing there that's, that's important for people yeah so they, they, they conduct this piece of research once a year it's really significant it's um thousands and thousands of people i think it's well over ten thousand people involved in in this survey so um clearly representative of the of the uk population it's, made, it's meant to give us a feel for how people uh, are doing in various parts of their of their lives and various parts of their their financial lives as well now what one issue that the fca had was that they conduct this um research from february to february um and then clearly the the most pertinent information relating to the uk happened after february 2020 i.e when coronavirus kicked in and lots and lots of people were facing quite difficult financial circumstances. So they did a piece of research after that, asking lots and lots of questions that were related to COVID and how that's impacting on people's vulnerability. So we can compare between February 2020 and around six months down the line from then when COVID and lockdown measures had taken an effect. Now, lots of the stuff in here is probably quite obvious, but I, I think when you see it in black and white and you see the numbers applied to the whole UK population, it is quite staggering. So that the headline finding in, in this piece of work was that over half of the UK adult population, so that's just over 27 million people, show characteristics of vulnerability at the moment. So that can be poor health, it can be low financial resilience, of course, or it could be someone who's suffered negative life, life events. So that might be linked to having coronavirus themselves, for example, or knowing a relative who's suffered from coronavirus as well. Now that's risen 15% since February, so clearly a big lockdown effect there. Um, if we look specifically at financial resilience, because this is a financial podcast, um, over a quarter of UK adults, that's just over 40 million people are labelled as having low financial resilience in the FCA's 
report. And so the number of people with low financial resilience during 2020 has increased by a third. And again, it's a, a coronavirus impact. We're seeing there lots of people facing cuts to their income, facing job insecurity as well. And so that's clearly going to weigh on um, on people's financial resilience. Lots of people, of course, as we've talked before about on this on this podcast, don't have huge amounts of cash saved um, to act as a buffer when tough times hit. Um, if I just pick out a couple of things that I thought were particularly striking um, from, uh, from, from this report. So if you look at food banks, so people who are really, really struggling, people who are, who, who are struggling to feed themselves and their families, and so are having to turn to a food bank in order to, um, in order to support them, the FCA found over 5 million people, 5.6 million people said they were, they were likely to use a food bank, um, almost 18 million people said they could cut back on essentials. That figure on food banks, that's somewhere in the region of one in 10 people plan to use a food bank. It's terrifying stuff when you really sit down and, um, and think about it. Um, and while we've talked previously on this podcast about it being a bit of a split in this country. So you've got some people who've done financially very well during the, the pandemic. So they've managed to keep their incomes and their costs for going out and going on holidays and things have gone down. There's another part of the country where things have been incredibly difficult. And the FCA found that over 8 million people expect to take on more debt as a result of the pandemics. That's as opposed to 14% of people who've seen an improvement in their financial situation um so going through all that and there's a lot more stuff in that financial life survey report as well including some interesting stuff from from before covid hit um but in terms of the things i think people should take away from those uh those key findings and i guess some things that people should think about um if you are one of the lucky ones so if you are someone who has some spare cash you might have spare cash for the first time in fact in your bank account i know that's both anecdotally and from various studies that's the position that a lot of people find themselves in if you are in that position then make a plan for that cash don't just let it sit there don't just spend it on um you know on assos or on, on on things that you don't necessarily need we've seen how a shock can hit everybody financially and if you don't have a buffer in place so we you, people usually say somewhere between three to six months of fixed expenditure, but whatever you can afford to put aside as a cash buffer, if you don't have one, then it's worth getting one set up now so that if something bad happens, be it something in the broader economy or just something like your car breaking down or your boiler breaking, that means you've at least got some money there to, to deal with that. So you're not having to borrow in order to do it and building up extra debts. And sadly, another issue that comes up as a result of this increased financial vulnerability and something that people need to be aware of is the the rising prevalence of scammers so most scammers most most scam activity now is focused on people's pensions and people's retirement funds post 55 and clearly as people are more financially vulnerable that's like blood in the water to um, scammers it's a, a sign that people are more likely to fall prey to the usual tactics that scammers use. So in these times when people are facing difficulties in terms of their income, in terms of their employment, they need to be on high alert and incredibly careful um, that they don't fall victim to scammers. Lots of different tactics used from scammers. They often 
uh, look to pretend to be legitimate companies. So they're known as clone scams. So that's where they'll they'll send you lots of material looking like they're a, a real bona fide company, but it might just change the contact details or the email address slightly, and then they'll try to scam you that way. So uh, I've I've talked about this a lot both on the podcast and elsewhere, but I think a lot of the messages bear repeating if you're contacted out of the blue by someone you don't know with a, a financial offer that looks too good to be true, then don't fall for it. Don't go down that route. Make sure you do your your checks and your due diligence on any investment before handing over your money. Um, be very careful on things like social media and online generally, as that's kind of a, a bit of a wild west for, for scam activities. And you see lots and lots of scammers looking to use high pressure tactics and, and all the rest of it to try to defraud you from your pension or from other forms of money as well. So um, lots of work being done by the industry and regulators and others to try to address scams. But the best way to avoid falling victim to a scam is to arm yourself with the information and the knowledge of the tactics that they use and, and, and avoid falling victim to those to those common tactics. Yeah, very good advice, Tom, and absolutely worth repeating. So yeah, th thanks for that. Um, Let's turn to something a little bit more positive, shall we? It's Retirement Corner. It's your favourite favorite moment of the week, isn't it, Retirement Corner? So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's positive positive for me. Um, hopefully positive for one or two other people who like hearing me talk about pensions, but that's never been confirmed, to be honest. So we'll, we'll find out, I'm sure. So uh, this week's question from Andy. Um, Andy's 45 years old, currently has a SIP worth around £130,000. So well done, Andy, for saving that up. That's a decent sized pot. Um, he asks, will I be able to access that at age 55 or will I have to wait until I'm 57? So this is quite topical, actually. Um, at the moment, under the UK's retirement rules, people can usually access their pension from age 55 but when the pension freedoms were first announced way back in 2014 so seven years ago now that's making me feel quite old um the government said the this age which is known as the normal minimum pension age in the pension jargon would rise to 57 from 2028 and that's happening alongside an increase in the state pension age to 67 the the plan from that point in time is for the earliest point that you can access your pension so the normal minimum pension age to rise in line with increase in the state pension age to, re to reflect increases in longevity, that's rising life expectancy. So we knew this was coming down the track, but the government's now set out some of the details on how it plans to introduce this increase in the normal minimum pension age. So due to go up to 57 from the 6th of April, 2028, the government's confirmed that People in the armed forces, firefighters and police will be exempt from the rise. And so they'll still be able to access their pension from an earlier age if they choose to. And that's an important point and something that will come on to towards the end. Now, people in schemes which contain specific provisions allowing them to access their pension before age 55 will also be able to retain a lower normal minimum pension age under these plans. This protection is expected to cover both existing and future benefits in the scheme, but we're still waiting on details on exactly how that's going to work. So this is all open for consultation at the moment. So it'll be something that we'll make sure we come back to both on the podcast and in future stuff in shares as well. 
Um, for pensions without these provisions and any new pensions set up from the 12th of February 2021, so from the day after the consultation was launched by the Treasury, the scheduled increase in the normal minimum pension age to 57 is expected to apply. So in Andy's case, assuming his current team doesn't have this right to take benefits from age 55 or from earlier than age 57, it's likely that he's going to be looking at a normal minimum pension age of 57. Although, as I said, this is all open to consultation. Now, I think it's important to note that while the normal minimum pension age is going up and there's been some negative headlines around this. This is just the earliest point that anybody is allowed to access their retirement pot. And just because you can access your retirement from 55 or from 57, it's from April 2028, doesn't mean that you should. And actually, if you think about it, someone who's in their mid 50s, who's healthy, might have another 35, maybe even 40 years to live. So when you're making decisions about accessing your, accessing your retirement pot, you need to think about how you're going to make sure that that money lasts as long as you do. And if you're looking at, looking at 35 or 40 years, then by taking the money earlier, you're going to have to take a lower income in order to make sure that money lasts for that entire period of your retirement. So just because the government says you can do something doesn't necessarily mean you should. And you should think about your long term priorities when you're making those kind of decisions. So Dan might be away today, but he recently caught up with investment strategist Andy Rothman. Andy works for Matthews Asia, which is a US-based asset manager running various funds, including some market-beating ones focused on China. Given that the FTSE, FTSE China 50 is the best performing index of the major ones around the world so far in 2021, we thought it'd be useful to learn more about the big issues for investors wanting exposure to that part of Asia. Andy, thank you for joining us. Uh, great to have you on the show. Uh, great to be here. Thank you. Thanks. Well, we're going to talk a bit about China. So China was the only major economy in the world to grow in 2020, but it's probably fair to say that the growth rate was slow compared to what the country normally experiences. I just want to, in terms of the sectors rebounding now that China's more than a year since um, experiencing COVID in Wuhan, what's, what, I'm just wondering, yeah, are all sectors rebounding or is it really just um, an economic recovery that's actually concentrated in certain places? Uh, it's a bit of all of that, I think. Um Every part of the economy is recovering, but some things are recovering more quickly. And I think that we can draw some interesting lessons for our own economies from what's happening in China, because they were the first to experience COVID, um, and they certainly botched the early days of it at the local government level in December and early January. But then everything kicked in, and they've handled it really well. But even though they've got very few cases, and very few deaths relative to everybody else. People are still wary about gathering in confined spaces. And so anything, any part of the economy that requires that, like movies and restaurants and bars and KTVs and things like that, are still a bit slower than they were before. Whereas industrial production was able to come back much more quickly. But I think everything is back on track. Okay, so a lot of people... Um, sort of question the GDP figures that are issued by China. And uh, I, I know lots of people are not really in favour of the way that the Chinese government can interfere with businesses. 
Um, I guess if we look at relationships between China and the US, um, they're not exactly very strong at the moment. There's, there's certainly lots of talk of delisting Chinese companies from the US. Um, and, and, and companies are even looking to shift manufacturing from China to other Asian countries. So I guess it's easy to see why some Western investors might look nervously at China. But is there an argument to suggest that investors shouldn't actually be worrying about this at all? Well, I think you raised a whole bunch of really good questions there. And they're all legitimate things for investors to be concerned about. Uh, but these all have to be put into context. And, you know, in some ways, the past year has been a great example of how those questions that you've raised have not weighed that heavily on, on, on the Chinese economy and on markets. Uh, as you noted, uh, the growth rate for China's GDP was the slowest in, in a really long time last year because of COVID. But you also pointed out that they're really the only major economy in the world to show growth last year. And that's relative performance is really important. Um, there were a lot of tensions uh, during the last year of the previous uh, U.S. administration between the capitals of Washington and Beijing. Um, and that may have worried a lot of investors, but we also have to keep in mind that most of the investors in the China market are Chinese. And here's one way to look at how these concerns that you listed affected markets last year. Um, if you look at the Matthews Asia China Fund, um, over the 12 months through the end of January, it was up over 60%. Uh, the Matthews Asia China Small Companies Fund was up over the 12 months through the end of January, uh, over 80%. Uh, now, clearly, past performance does not indicate where things are going to go in the future. The reason I raise this is that that performance came during a period of COVID, during a period of major tensions, during a lot of talk about deglobalization and companies leaving China. But I think that if investors look for an actively managed approach to China. And so that means focusing on privately owned publicly listed companies rather than state-owned enterprises. It means focusing on the domestic demand story in China rather than exports. And remember that domestic demand is the biggest part of the Chinese economy, just like it is in our economies. Um, and if there's a focus on doing a lot of due diligence to make sure that you get companies that are appropriate for investors in terms of ESG uh, and in terms of really caring about minority shareholders uh, and returns. Okay, I mean, on the subject of ESG, um, uh, is there any evidence that Chinese companies are improving corporate governance or do you think this will be something that might not happen for, for quite a while? Well, again, I think it's both of those things. I think Things are much better in general than they were five years ago, let's say. Uh, but I, I think that ESG, just like all of the other aspects of, of investing in any market, mean that you, you have to be picky and discriminating and, and, and choose your individual companies carefully. Uh, I don't think that it makes a lot of sense to say, how does China's ESG stack up to Japan's ESG or Britain's ESG? Because I think a savvy investor is not going to say, I'm going to invest in China. They're going to say, the Chinese economy drives global growth. Uh, in the decade 
prior to last year. Every year on average, China accounted for about one third of global economic growth, a larger share of global growth than from the US, Europe, and Japan combined. Last year, it was probably 100%, just like it was during the global financial crisis when everybody else was in decline. That will go back to the norm, which is China accounting for about a third of global growth. So for me, the question is, do you or your clients need to have some exposure or an appropriate level of exposure to this driver of global growth? But then when it comes down to an investment perspective, I think it's all about picking the right stocks. And here, broadly speaking in the market, I think China is lagging behind most countries in terms of ESG. But you don't have to invest in China. You can be really picky. So, for example, we're the largest uh, active investor in Chinese equities in the United States. Um, but we only invest in about 170 Chinese companies. So that's about 3% of the listed universe. So we can be really, really picky in saying we're only going to invest our clients' money, including clients from the UK and Europe, into companies that meet our criteria for ESG, rather than worrying about is the entire market catching up to the rest of the world? So what, what exactly is Matthews Asia looking for? Is there sort of a very specific investment process when you're trying to, to find stocks to invest in? Oh, sure. Um, and so, you know, one of the advantages that I think we can bring is that we are focused primarily on Asia. Uh, we've got a, an investment team of over 40 professionals who are just working on that. And we've got a lot of specific knowledge. So, for example, uh, in terms of, let's say, the uh, issues with COVID or the relationship between the United States and China or what's happening with monetary policy or government policy towards the property market, that's what I focus on and then share my thoughts on that with my colleagues on the investment team who pick the stocks. We also have someone who focuses primarily on ESG issues, including in China, and she'll make sure that our colleagues on the investment team understand the details of how that's working to help them the, then go and do a deep dive into the individual companies. And these are things, you know, especially in China, uh, where it's far away and the language is difficult, that it's hard for an individual investor to do on their own. Yeah, so I mean, we're often told that China does actually offer considerable opportunities for investors. But are there sort of specific companies and sectors that are um, sort of doing best on the stock market. So I, pres I presume when you mentioned that Chinese uh, growth is all linked to sort of domestic activity, um, is it the, the, the Alibabas and Tencents of the world which are um, leading the charge for, for investors or other names perhaps that people might not be so familiar with? Great question. So I'm the macro person on our investment team. So let me give you a macro answer to that question and then make my way down to the more specifics that you asked about. Um, there have been some really dramatic structural changes to the Chinese economy that I think a lot of investors are not aware of. Um, one is that the Chinese economy is no longer export oriented. And we don't have all the full data for last year yet, but in the five years prior to last year through 2019, uh, net exports, that's the value of a country's exports minus their imports, contributed on average zero to China's GDP growth each year. It's really no longer an export-led economy. In fact, last year, 2020, was the ninth consecutive year in which 
the domestic demand part of the Chinese economy was the biggest part, bigger than manufacturing and construction. So China is well into a transformation that's taking its economy to look a lot more like ours. And it's also, in my view, the world's best consumer story. Uh, retail, sell, retail spending by Chinese consumers converted to dollars is almost as big as it is in the United States, and it's growing uh, outside of last year. It's growing much faster. Um, so it is a domestic demand story. And also, by investing in the domestic demand story, you're mitigating a lot of the impacts of tensions with other countries over exports. So I think from a macro perspective, you're looking for companies that are participating in and taking advantage of the fastest growing biggest part of the economy, which is the, the consumer and services part. But beyond that, um, you know, that's where my expertise kind of ends and I pass it over to my colleagues on the team who are picking the individual stocks. And here, I think if you look at our holdings, um, you can see that we tend to favor privately owned entrepreneurial companies that are publicly listed over state-owned enterprises. We tend to prefer companies in the consumer and services sector that are dealing with domestic demand. Um, but beyond that, it's really about doing a lot of due diligence uh, into the individual companies. And of course, looking at things like valuations and ESG. Perfect. And so just one final question. Um, just trying to get your thoughts on Joe Biden's administration, uh, the chances of them repairing relationships with China after, you know, four years of tension under Donald Trump. Do you think that Biden is um, is going to sort of see big changes or, or um, is it going to, it will take a lot of work to try and uh, rebuild any, any trust that was there before sort of pre-Trump era? It's going to be a big challenge for Biden to repair all sorts of things. Uh, that were damaged over the previous administration. But that's clearly his focus and his objective. Uh, right now, I've, you can see that he's really putting all of his energy into doing that on the domestic side, which I think is appropriate. But I think we've already seen a bit of an improvement in U.S.-China relations simply as a result of what Biden and his team are not saying. They are not characterizing the Chinese government as an existential threat to America. They are not, as the previous administration did, talking about the idea of regime change in China. So simply not saying those two things creates much more space, much more opportunity for the Chinese government to sit down and talk pragmatically and rationally and clearly with the US government. Now, it's early days. Biden's only been in office for a couple of weeks. So I'm still hopeful that there's going to be an opportunity for things in U.S.-China relations to get back on track. Uh, I think it's also interesting that if you, if you look at the speech that Biden just gave about the overall direction of his foreign policy, he made very clear something he said during his campaign, which is that his foreign policy is going to be focused on helping build up the American middle class and working class and that his foreign policy is going to be a reflection of that. So I think that that means you're not going to see, for example, an emphasis on the trade deficit, which is not something that was going to help American workers. Um, and so I'm, I'm optimistic, but I also 
want to point out something, go back to something I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, which is that even when things were really tense between China and the United States last year, Chinese economy did well and the markets performed well. Brilliant. Well, Andy, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. Right. That's everything from us this week. Thanks very much for listening. And we hope you've enjoyed the podcast. And if you have, please do share it with anyone else you think will be interested and leave a review of the show if you have time. See you next time. Bye for now. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.